Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, always fun to be here and always fun, by the way, out there in listener land to hear from you. So keep the comments, questions, suggestions coming. I always respond. And of course, your host, Sherry DeNovo, uh, is my day job name. And uh, today, uh, it's a left, left or leftist panel with uh, a couple of uh, folk we haven't heard from in a while. And I'm so excited about it. We've got David Slavic. He's a semi-retired political analyst, host of the popular podcast, and... Ukrainian American right. slash Canadian. <laughs> so welcome, David. Uh, all the way from it's New so Zealand. good to be here. Yeah, and uh, we have also Anthony Q uh, Omeni. Oh, um, oh, did I say that right, Anthony? You, it's Q Anthony Omeni, but uh, it's Q okay. Anthony Omeni. Okay, cool. Thanks for you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, freelance uh, freelance writer and host of the Unredacted podcast. Uh, you may know him also as uh, an editor at McLean's formerly. So welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Let, let's dive right in. Uh, we're going to start and we're going to work in concentric circles, starting from Ontario and then maybe moving out. But let's uh, talk about Ontario politics just for a moment. It's not top of the radar, but there is an election coming up in less than 100 days now here. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Anthony. Tell us, what do you think is going to happen? What should happen? Uh, what's happening in Ontario? Nothing. <laughs> That's the problem. Nothing is happening. That is a huge problem because with the, uh, the election bearing down on us, what is the central issue that either of the opposition parties are building their platform on? That's, 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 like a, that's not rhetorical. It's an honest question. Does anybody yeah. know? I, I mean, it's, it is a good question because nobody can point to one top of mind issue, except perhaps maybe uh, the leadership during COVID. That's exactly it. And, right. Well, that's the thing. The question is whether anybody believes that Doug Ford and the, the uh, conservative, the progressive conservative party of Ontario have uh, done everything possible to lead Ontarians uh, through COVID to minimize uh, death and disability, um, to protect frontline workers, to make sure that people weren't being kicked out of their homes. Like when we talk about everything being on the table, can we say, in all honesty, that the Ford government has done everything in its power to protect Ontarians during the course of the pandemic? Obviously, the answer is no. Um, the investigation into assisted living facilities, uh, which ought to, I mean, it, it, it would, it'll curdle milk if you read through the horrendous conditions that um, elders were put through. It was, it was essentially institutional elder abuse. That on top of the confusing array of uh, lockdowns and then releases and then re-lockdowns and then semi-lockdowns, uh, where essentially business interests were put ahead of uh, health and public safety, uh, that schools were opened without the proper preparation or equipment necessary to ensure orderly function without the spread of COVID. The fact that Amazon warehouses and meatpacking plants and uh, and, and agricultural or farms uh, out in, in Windsor, Leamington, for example, uh, were the sources of uh, massive spreads of COVID. Has anybody been held accountable for that? Unfortunately, we know that this government has been, I wouldn't even just say neglectful, but almost malicious uh, in its, its uh, contempt towards public health and safety while trying to cast the impression that they have been doing everything that's possible. But the problem isn't just with the Ford government, because we already knew 
what kind of character for Doug Ford is and what kind of character the PC party has right now. The problem is that the opposition parties have not made the PC party of Ontario and in particular Doug Ford have not made them radioactive. And if you haven't embarrassed this party to the extent that they're willing to throw their leader overboard to save face, then that is a failure on the part of the opposition parties. And frankly, the political, like I know that whenever I end up on this podcast, I end up taking the, the nihilist position and I really don't mean to, but it is an absolute abysmal failure on the part of our political class that there is no meaningful opposition to this government right now. And in my estimation, they will probably win a second term. Yeah, I think the polls are showing a minority government. Uh, so weigh in here, David, any thoughts? You're from, you're from the outside looking in. So I, I have never seen um, such an, an impotent opposition to such a ghoul as I've seen with, with Rob Ford. I mean, not Rob Ford, with Doug Ford, I'm sorry. And I'm sure with Rob Ford, but I wasn't around for that. But, uh, you know, but honestly, the the fact is, is that he withheld COVID funds that were, you know, Ontarians pay a bulk of the taxes in Canada, you know, in, in large part, or a plurality at least. And, you know, between BC, Ontario, and, and one or two other provinces, Quebec, you know, these are the people paying these taxes that this federal funds go from, right? We're from an area that is largely affluent, a lot of working class people as well, but a lot of the taxes that go to this federal government come from Toronto and the GTA. Yet we're seeing all of these funds get sat on and paying down a uh, budget deficit in, in some part, doing nothing for the schools. You know, and, and one of the things that's that I think is very good about the Toronto area and in the GTA in general is that the schools are very good and parents care, and people are engaged. Yet, we've seen very little things done for the schools to make them safer, very little things done for the elder uh, elders in our community who have been locked away from their families, who have not been able to visit their kids. Um, after one of the, the biggest callings of senior citizens we've seen in the world, besides New York State, nothing has been done in that, that, that regard. And the things that the opposition is being choo is choosing to sort of attack are very funny. I just saw we just talked off air about um, the liberal opposition talking about uh, banning Russian products from the LCBO. Now, LCBO is one of the biggest uh, buyers of liquor, um, and they could probably do a lot with that purchasing power they don't do anyway, right? But just an hour ago, the Ford government has decided they're going to do that. Now, I think, you know, uh, Anthony and I had talked about off air a little bit about uh, and he had discussed on his Twitter uh, account, which I, I highly recommend people who have not following him to follow him, that a lot of the liquor that people are dumping on these videos that are very performative is made in Latvia, which is an ally. So it, it, this consumer sort of approach to like global affairs and these all these sorts of things, it's not politics, really. It's it's quasi politics it's brand politics it's i buy starbucks because i want to feel like i'm a good person we need more than that from an opposition in one of the most powerful provinces in north america uh we're an economic powerhouse we should be doing better uh, uh speaking here to david slavic and q anthony omeni here on a number of topics on the radical reverend show if you're just tuning in i would add uh 
bunch of stuff actually. Uh, and I want to ask another question after I add them, but certainly paid sick days, where are they? We don't have them. That helped fuel a pandemic and privatization increasingly of education and healthcare. That is the, that's the plan. Uh, the implementation is to make both incredibly unsafe and safe for the people who work in those industries, <laughs> healthcare and education. And, uh, and you know, increasingly uh, make, make the consumer pay, talking about pay. So people with means are gonna take their kids out of the public education system because it's unsafe. And, uh, and nurses are quitting by the droves because they're not being paid enough and because they're being abused in their positions. So but not to mention others, you know, who are like, you know, PSWs, et cetera, who are in even worse straits. And, you know, then on top of it, we're the only province in Canada that doesn't have, you know, hasn't done a deal with the feds for $10 a day childcare. This is appalling, but uh, the polls aren't showing it. Uh, I want to ask one more question before we leave Ontario generally in the election upcoming, and that is about union leadership during the pandemic, because we've had years of the pandemic now. One would have thought, and I'm going to be provocative here, that this was a time for a general strike if ever there was one. You've got healthcare workers in crisis. You've got teachers who are, nobody seems to be watching their back. It's horrendous what's going on in our, our education system. And that's just those two large uh, unionized areas. But then of course, all the private sector unions and it compared this and contrast it with the United States where teachers in Chicago, you know, uh, got militant where private sector unions got incredibly militant in the United States for the first time in a long time with wins at like, you know, Kellogg's, et cetera. Um, what do you say? So at Q Anthony, I'm going to go to you. Um, what about unions? Oh boy. Um, I don't want to like piss off any of my union friends, but as we've seen in the United States, the, the majority of wins that have been scored in terms of government policy have come from unions. And unfortunately we haven't seen that kind of, I, I don't want to diminish the effectiveness or the utility of unions in Canada, but unions in the United States have just gone straight radical. And I, I'm actually talking to, I'm talking to uh, members of, uh, members who have unionized um, inside of Starbucks. And they're very good at uh, when a member of theirs is retaliated against for union organizing, they make a lot of noise about it. Um, Amazon union people, uh, for example, like Christian Smalls, the organizer who's been in the news for a couple of years now, you know, has been continuing to make waves and exposing um, Amazon's illegal practices to crush union organizing. And I, I don't know, I, I think that in this country, we do deal with somewhat of a labor aristocracy and we do deal with a little bit of torpidity and it's going to be up to the unions, even for people that aren't members of their unions, people who could become uh, members of their unions, people who are gig workers, delivery drivers, uh, people who work freelance jobs and so on. And I know that there is union representation for each of them, but now's the time knowing that uh, the aligned forces behind capital and tend to leave those of us behind who can't keep up. The only uh, strong ally that we have are unions, and I think they are going to have to take more responsibility in helping to organize um, areas of the private and public sector that are not organized. They're going to have to get out there and, and do, you know, organizing 101 sessions for people if necessary. 
Uh, they're going to have to start lobbying their governments harder and perhaps even break a few friendships. But this is it's literally them and nobody else. Uh, yeah, certainly, you know, everybody on this panel on left, left or leftist, always on the radical Robin are pro-union. I mean, we want to see everybody should be unionized just about. Uh, so there's no discussion there. Uh, but we had that stark reminder of how bad things were. I think when $15 minimum wage, when Doug Ford got rid of it and then brought it back and he stood there with union leadership behind him supporting him on that. I, I, David, yeah. weigh in on, um, on, on, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda unions. No, I, I have to say, and this is one of the things I think for, there are Americans who definitely listen to the show. And I want to say is that one thing you'll never recognize as an American is just how small the political circles are in Canada. If you think they're small in the U.S., they're one-tenth as small in Canada. And I think you'll, you'll often have people at the same dinner party who, um, you know, you would think would not like each other in, in the normal sense. And that happens in Washington all the time. But in Canada, it's, you know, they live in the same neighborhood and, you know, they, they have they, their kids go to the same schools and, and all this type of stuff. And it's very hard to mount a very radical opposition um, in from the Canadian left in, in sort of the ways things are organized and sort of how the, the politics of power and personhood, you know, are organized. And I think that, um, you know, I've seen it and I, I won't name any names, but, you know, I've seen it in my, in my own life where that, you know, people who really should be at each other's throats are not. And, and that's good in a way. And I think Canada does better on a lot of things because of that. But it also makes things that seem like they would be easy pro progressive moves to make almost impossible. Let's, uh, while I've still uh, got you talking, David, uh, let's segue to the States before we come back to Ontario, because of course, one of the big, uh, big issues of the year so far has been uh, the convoy, the Ottawa siege. Uh, we'll get to that. But, you know, your thoughts about south of the border now, what's, what's happening down there? That's <coughs> where you're from. So I, you know, I, having worked in, in Washington for for many years, and uh, particularly in, in Democratic politics, uh, I'm I'm a little concerned about just just where things are going. I think that the the Biden administration had uh, a a broad mandate that uh, sort of fit in the you know more centrist sort of uh, establishment people like my parents you know were you know teachers union members and things like that, but they want good progress, but they don't know how fast it should work or how fast it could work. You know, to people who, who broadly would, you know, uh, call themselves socialists on the left and um, get a mandate in, in that everyone wanted Donald Trump out. We're willing to do as much as we can. I think that, um, you know, they pulled too many punches in the first, you know, 365 days of the administration. Now they're entering a, um, uh, a midterm in which uh, the Republicans are not going to pull any punches. Um, they have the Republicans have like opposing factions who are, who are really eyeing to take out as many Democrats as possible. And and the Democratic side, we have we have sort of people are speaking with one voice and that voice is we're not going to do much because because we're afraid. And I think that, um, you know, if people are were worried after the trucker convoy in Canada, they should be quite worried about the U.S. because the U.S. has even less of a firewall of civility to deal with something that would happen there. Now, I don't think that the um, the right is as organized or the, as thoughtful in some ways as the convoy was here. I was super impressed with the logistical uh, sort of work that the some of the convoy people had done. Um, I also think that 
they would be much worse at branding it than the, the convoy was here. I think the, the convoy did a pretty good job of picking a few people here and there who looked a little different than the rest of the groups who didn't speak like the rest of the people and weren't uh, necessarily indicative of the um, sort of founding fathers of the, the convoys politics, you know, to stand out. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I saw the picture of the Sikh man handing out uh, samosas, you know, and saying, this is not with the con this is you know they're saying i'm a white nationalist look at me you know now that was like few and far between so i think in the in the states i don't think there's as much sort of cultural cohesion and maybe some sort of um sympathy between the groups as as there is in canada i think it's smaller people you know they know their neighbors and maybe maybe they are racist but they like their Sikh neighbor and they like the samosas so it's it's a it's a little more complicated in the states in canada than it is in the states so i i don't think the convoy will be as successful uh q anthony you want to weigh in on this just before we move on or move back americans uh only only to the extent that um i, I actually find it a, a a little bit hilarious that Americans were out organized by the right this time and that people are looking towards our right wing as a uh, as a source of inspiration. Um, I, there have been rumblings about a trucker convoy happening in the United States and so far nothing has materialized. So I'm I'm a little bit tickled by that, but I think I, I'm, I find it humorous because it's also deeply depressing. And that's that if the right has been able to out-organize us to this extent, you know, so what does that say about the remainder of us? Um, whether you're liberal, whether you're progressive, or consider yourself just a flat-out socialist, um, what does that say about our, uh, you know, a, uh, inability to organize effectively and rally behind some of the issues that the right managed to co-opt away from us? And then B, um, the, the fact that we haven't been able to maintain a hold on power almost anywhere in this country is a bit of a problem. As for what's happening south of the border right now, I mean, everything uh, has almost, everything is almost to do right now with U.S. foreign policy. Um, what the Biden administration has been able to do, I think masterfully, is deflect away from its, uh, its current failures by highlighting uh, key wins. So one of them right now, is the fact that uh, Biden just nominated a, a black woman for um, for Supreme Court justice, uh, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown. And the culture war that's about to be fought isn't about whether uh, her jurisprudence, her legal philosophies and so on mesh with what the majority of Americans want um, in a Supreme Court justice. It's going to be a culture war. It's going to be a war about intersectionality and critical race theory and affirmative action and so because he nominated a black woman and he said that he was going to nominate a black woman for justice so it's entirely gonna it's gonna it's gonna revolve around um whether a black woman is qualified enough to be uh on the supreme court or whether white america can get over its its long-held and and uh deeply embedded racism uh to nominate a qualified candidate but the problem is, in the United States, there's uh, they've they've gone well over a million deaths due to COVID. Um, there's there's been a mass disabling event for which there's been no institutional response, anything resembling public healthcare options, much less universal healthcare. Uh, that they have uh, essentially governors that are 
borderline insurrectionary to the federal government. Like the concept of federalism in the United States is beginning to fall apart. Like it's it's long since ceased to just show cracks. Now we're actually witnessing, I think, the beginning of a, a fracturing in terms of uh, what public health mandates the Biden administration needs to have maintained by the states in order to move on past the pandemic and outright rebellion from those states, uh, funding that goes to those states for, um, for, uh, for healthcare, for maintenance, for, for taking care of uh, less advantaged citizens and the states simply not distributing those funds whatsoever. Uh, that you have corporations that are essentially writing laws even now. So there are some massive failures that the Biden administration is able to, I guess, divert into culture war nonsense. And uh, after deliberately stoking conflict in Eastern Europe, now we have an all-out war, an invasion uh, that just took place um, with Russian tanks crossing the border into the Donbass regions, launching uh, missile attacks against, uh, against Ukrainian air bases and other military installations with bombs landing in Kyiv and a ground war uh, about to occur. This is great for the Biden administration because there's an ability to rally Americans behind a single cause, which, by the way, has nothing to do with America itself proper, but it has entirely been to do with American oligarchs. Uh, and on top of that, there's a looming threat of China at all times, which many journalists uh, and pundits have at the same time picked up that a war with Russia means that China is free to do, I'm not exactly sure what it is it they think China is going to do, but it's great. This way you don't actually have to do anything for your people and you can focus everyone's attention on things that are happening all the way across the world that the average person in America has no power to, uh, to affect an outcome. Now, and I think it just, also, oh, oh, I can I, I'm just gonna I, okay. uh, jump in here because thank you. You covered a lot of base there, uh, Q Anthony. Uh, uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here, your host, Sherry Genovo, and we have David Slavik, seven retired uh, political analyst and host of the popular podcast, also Ukrainian uh, American slash Canadian. And we have Q Anthony Omeni, who's a freelance writer and host of the Unredacted podcast, who you're just listening to. I just want to throw in there be, before we lose this train of thought. Uh, on uh, the nomination to the Supreme Court in the States, Biden's nomination. I'll get your take on that in a moment, uh, David. Uh, But uh, I woke up today to Jordan Peterson's comment on Twitter, uh, incredibly racist comment. I don't know if you both saw that. And that's not an American, that's a Canadian. Uh, So maybe that's the the appropriate segue into getting into white supremacy in Canada and the convoy. But David, you you wanted to weigh in for a minute. No, no, I I just wanted to say that, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, I think that the, the Ukraine situation is is very convenient for the Biden administration going into the midterms where they can scream Russia, Russia, Russia once again. Um, and, you know, that can really distract from the politics. We There was all the discussions about Donald Trump. None of them were about, you know, the failure of neoliberalism. There was none of the failure of the Clinton years. None of them were about, you know, actual reactions to politics during the Obama administration. It was all about Russia. And so it's very convenient to have you know, not have to address your own record, not to have to address anything you've done, but to, to lean into Russia once again. And, and, and Putin, in some ways, has made that more possible, um, maybe to his advantage. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, I, have, I have a theory of, of change uh, about the United States. It's very scary that I'm going to present that you're going to, you're going to find very, very terrifying regarding Putin and what he might actually want. And I don't think it's Donald Trump. Um but we'll talk about that later. But I also wanted to say is that uh, 
yeah, I mean, it, I think uh, Anthony's right. It's, you know, we are in a position in the U.S. where you have a, you know, sort of impotent uh, governing structure that uh, doesn't want to shake things up too much um, and is, is a position where they're going to be, um, you know, uh, sort of making it a culture war about a, a, a you know, a, a Supreme Court justice when when the, the right is very clear about what they want in a Supreme Court justice. They want somebody who's going to support corporate power. They want someone who's going to uh, strike down affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Democrats are, they haven't spoken about, all they spoke about is they wanted a black woman. And I think that like, that's important. Like representation does matter. We need faces and places. That's absolutely true. But the fact is, what I would like to see, and I think Ketanji Brown is a much better nominee than some of the other nominees who were put forward who are quite corporate. Um, I'd like to see someone who's going to like reverse the carceral state, who's going to help fight and be persuasive in, you know, making sure that black and brown kids are not uh, put in a, in a school to prison pipeline. I like to see social welfare programs upheld. You know, that's what I'm concerned about, you know, and like, I, I'm very glad that there's gonna be a woman of color on the Supreme Court, but we, I'd also like to see, and I like them talk about, you know, because this is part of their larger political program, is that these justices matter because what we're doing matters, and they don't talk about that. Yeah, let's um, let's circle back to um, what's. Been Sorry, called. if I can just add oh, one sure, thing sure. though. Go for it. Yeah, and that's that. Like a lot of people responded to uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, tweet. Uh, I forget exactly what he said. He said something about like you know. Oh, you know, this has nothing to do with competence and nothing to do with ability or whatever. It's just intersectional politics or something like that. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know, it's it's funny because he act he does this stuff on purpose in order to bait people into saying he's racist, so he can turn around and say, "Oh, well, I'm not racist. I mean, I have black friends, and why is it that every time that we have?" Free thinking conversations, it has to go back to racism. It shows that's like the, you lack critical or, or transphobia. Uh, yeah. I gotta say, yeah, that's one like, of the better a, Jordan a, Peterson's I've ever heard. I gotta be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the slop he likes to roll around in, though. Like, he, he absolutely loves this stuff. And I, I just I'm I'm almost like, don't 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 give him that because he enjoys yeah. it so much. That's the attention he loves. A question for him would be all right, so if you think that this is not a matter of competence, Jordan B. Peterson, we're, we're dying to know. Uh, what about her jurisprudence do you disagree with? What, yeah. what legal philosophy can you point to that yeah. she's embraced that, or what, what, the, what opinions, what decisions, Jordan B. Peterson, yeah. can you point to that you disagree with and can you explain why? Give us a quick summary. <laughs> Ask him those kinds of questions and he... He will never be able to answer them because yeah. he lives in that cheap, gimmicky, yeah. one-off, like, I'm going to zing off a tweet and then put everything on mute. And then the next uh, intellectual dark web asshole whose podcast or radio show I go and interview on, I get to complain that everybody called me a racist for saying racist yeah. shit. Yeah. Here why you, are they, why they keep uh, harassing me for lynching people? That's it. <laughs> So let's let's talk about you know what was called the flu trucks clan the clown convoy the ottawa occupation the ottawa siege um and and i want to start the conversation out here by saying that one of the one of the reactions that i had was similar to what you've been speaking about is uh 
Uh, well, first of all, if, if you or I or anyone was to park their truck or their car in the middle of a main street, uh, it would be towed within about five minutes and we would be charged. Uh, yet everybody knew these trucks were coming. Everybody knew it well in advance. Where were the tow trucks? Where was the just ordinary kind of traffic response to something like that? Um, you know, uh, certainly, uh, certainly wasn't there. So we know police work for the state, not for us. We got that. But this was just outrageously egregious, just in terms of you know how you run a city. Uh, but the other thing I, I would also throw into the mix is, yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain amount of like where is the left in terms of organizing? This goes back to my earlier question, where you know we've lived through one of the worst pandemics in the history of humanity, or it's just in the last hundred years anyway, and uh, and and times where people are risking their lives for their jobs, and there have been no strikes. So where's the left in response to right-wing populism? And I'm going to go to you, um, Anthony, first. Weigh in. Where's the left in response to right-wing populism? <laughs> well, the left, uh, such that it exists, uh, flocked towards the liberal position, which was incredibly disappointing. Because I, I, I guess, like, in, in times of, like, uh, national emergency and panic, and I can completely understand this, you look to whatever solutions seem the most reasonable and you bond to that. And the liberal government, I will say, has seemed very reasonable. That doesn't mean that it's correct. It doesn't mean I even agree with any of it, but it has been very reasonable. And the problem is when you uh, push things like mandates, to keep in mind, our, and, and vaccine passports, keep in mind what you're doing here. So when you push a mandate and say that you have to get vaccinated in order to work in such and such position um, or else you're going to be fired because you can't take a sick leave. You, you can't take sick days off. You basically have to come to work or we're going to fire you. That is not by after saying that we're all in this together, that is actually a public policy failure. If you're, if your goal is if the goal is not to reach hundred percent vaccination. The goal is to uh, end the pandemic and, if you're taking a vaccine-only approach, this is the only possible outcome. So given that 85% of the Canadian population who's eligible to get the vaccine has gotten the vaccine, then what you're saying is you are depending, you, you have not baked into the equation the idea that a 15% of people, whether out of hesitancy, inability, medical disqualification, or being strict anti-vaxxers, you haven't baked in the possibility that 15% of your population would not be vaccinated. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't uh, drawn up some, I don't know, like some, some PowerPoint presentations, some charts, some Excel spreadsheets and so on to account for those possibilities, then what the hell are you doing in government in the first place? So if you're, if you're saying to workers that they have to go to work or they lose their income, or sorry, they have to get vaccinated or essentially they lose their income. And not only do they lose their work income, but we're going to kick you off the unemployment insurance rules as well. So you basically get vaccinated. Your, your options are vaccination or starvation. Then that is incredibly anti-worker. And the idea that people on the left would be going along with this and saying, well, you should be passing these mandates and workers should be getting vaccinated. We have to end this pain. No, what you're saying is you're accepting the framing that a vaccine only approach is acceptable for the government that said that we're all in this together, knowing how many other options were on the table and are not there, 
including the possibility of importing vaccines from outside of these big pharma companies. So access to the Cuban vaccine, access to the Sinopharm vaccine, we don't have, so the, the Sinovac vaccine, we don't have that, which means all options were not on the table. So this has been a gigantic corporatist giveaway. And all you have to do is take one look at the balance sheets, at the, at the earnings, the, the, uh, the 2021 earnings for companies like Pfizer and Moderna, et cetera, to know that they've been pandemic profiteering. And if you're somebody that is or considers yourself to be on the left spectrum of politics, that should be a problem for you. It's not a matter of, well, the pandemic is more important. No, all of these things are of importance because they're all part of the same phenomenon. The public policy that allowed, the, the, allowed COVID to rip through the population and using COVID, the fear of getting COVID, uh, as a tactic to force compliance and to hand over massive windfalls and profit to, uh, to, to big pharma. The second thing is vaccine oh, passports. A select I, group yeah. of big pharma. Now, I, did, I, just, right, I only right. wanted to kick that yeah. in because there are a lot of really good vaccines out there across the world that have not been imported. We've missed right. it. No, I just I just wouldn't have said that. Is that like it's actually even it's even worse than big pharma. It's a select group of big pharma. Go on. I'm, go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, and then the second part is where it comes to the vaccine passports. And I wrote about this in the Globe and Mail is that, uh, again, people as, like it, out of the fear of covid and out of the feeling of helplessness that there's nothing on their own that they will be able to do to affect the outcome, they turn towards government, which is a natural instinct. I completely understand that. But when your government has, tells you that they're going to restrict your access to public places, so you cannot go to stadiums or shopping malls and so on, it's like, well, you know, we've been locked down. We've been through that. So if you don't get vaccinated, then no, you shouldn't be able to go to those places. All right. Well, what about when you need to go to, I don't know, say like a family gathering? Uh, what if somebody dies and you're going to the funeral? What if you're going, what if you're invited to a wedding as a disabled person who is medically ineligible to get the vaccine and you live in, I don't know, British Columbia, where there are no exceptions for people that are medically ineligible? Are you telling me that it's okay that a, a non-vaccinated 11-year-old who is as easy of uh, a COVID vector as anybody else, would, especially because they spend their daytime in crowded schools, breathing the same air as the other children for eight, or for eight hours a day. Are you telling me that it makes any sense that an 11-year-old child who is a COVID vector should be able to attend the wedding, but the medically ineligible adult who is, I don't know, possibly a senior should not be able to attend? It makes no sense, okay, but I'm, people I'm are willing to accept that. I'm going to jump in here, though, because it sounds yeah. to me, uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show here with David Slavic and Q. Anthony Omeni. Uh, it sounds to me like some, you know, support for the convoy. And quite frankly, I. And it's most not support Canadians for the. No, not. it's not support for the convoy. <laughs> okay. It's not support for the convoy. It's, it's the idea that you've allowed the con. Like the reason I'm going through all of these and explaining them in excruciating detail is because people allowed the convoy to hijack principled opposition to many of these, uh, these, these government measures that have not only enabled a mass disabling event, not only thrown disabled people completely aside, I don't think that most people are even aware that disabled people that were not working before COVID were only eligible for $600 throughout this entire pandemic. Most disabled people make somewhere around the, the area of about 40% of the median income in this country. Disabled people are, by and large, very poor. 
This well, gov- our, our provincial- like what under twelve hundred dollars a month. So yes, yeah, in and Toronto, what- you can't live on twelve hundred dollars. You can't so pay rent. Poverty for those. You can who- barely live on twelve thousand a month in Toronto. <laughs> you can't, you can't pay that? rent on twelve hundred dollars a month. There is that. They weren't. That. They were not. Disabled people were not eligible for a CERB. People think that CERB was universal basic income, and it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone yeah. acted like everything was okay because they were getting their $2,000 a month, but disabled people weren't getting anything. And the reason, like, again, I'm going through this in excruciating detail is because as long as people that consider themselves to be on the left, as long as they were taken care of, they said, screw everybody else, screw the people that have fallen through the cracks, screw the homeless people, screw disabled people, screw people that are, are, are undocumented immigrants. They didn't care about any of that. And all of these measures hurt every single one of those demographics that I just named. And I didn't see one person that considered themselves to be a progressive commentator, a progressive politician that was raising as much hell over the fact that we threw away entire sections of our population as they were angry about these truckers that occupied Ottawa. Well, guess what? They were actually speaking to those issues that you should have been talking about and you didn't do that. So I think part of the upset is that they see that the, the truckers, their message was resonating with people, the very same people that they want to be able to appeal to politically. And the reason that they could appeal to them is because you said nothing and did nothing the entire time. Shame on you. You deserve it. OK, well, uh, with that, David, <laughs> uh, just have a few more minutes on this. Topic yeah, so I, 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 you know, this is. I think he's done a great job of it. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the emergencies issue. Like we, ha- like we haven't got, which is a whole different situation. Yeah, oh my goodness. yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. everyone which, <laughs> is for that. Yes. Yeah, and that. Uh, you and know, I just want to say, off, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I just, I think you know, uh, first of all, I, I'm going to address that right on the on, on the money in very quick way. I'm going to say, parking tickets on day one could have prevented a constitutional crisis. Parking tickets on day one. And tow trucks. (laughs) Tow trucks. I mean, the tow trucks, okay, if the tow trucks don't want to, there were some people who didn't want to involve themselves in the tow trucking. I understand that both from a solidarity standpoint, but also from like, uh, I I don't want my tire slash standpoint. Like, I get that. Like, you're a business. You can't go anywhere. They could drive away, right? But these are people in these convoys. And I, I interviewed one who's actually a friend of a friend who is very nice and very reasonable. And he talks. He's an Occupy Wall Street guy. His name was uh, Gordon McNeil, and he was in Newsweek. I don't know where his politics changed along the road, but he still identifies as left of center. You know, he was he was an Occupy Wall Street guy. He went down. He was in Zuccotti Park. You know, he speaks like a leftist, but he he just he couldn't he couldn't take it right. And he was engaged, you know, largely in these these uh, these protests. But what he was talking about, he said, I didn't see anyone. And I think this goes back to Q Anthony's comments. Like he didn't see anyone addressing the things that he was dealing with. And he finally found some movement in which he could, he could buy into. Now that may be true, but along the way, you know, both the left and the lefter, let's say the liberal and the NDP parties could have embraced some of these peoples and their concerns. There could have been some aspects of, of sort of the dogma around COVID that could have been, you know, understandable. A lot of people got COVID, were concerned about getting a vaccine later for whatever reason, whether that's true or untrue, that's a thing, right? But people, there weren't these sort of accommodations to make this work for the whole of, of the population. And it was just, I think there was a lot of people and I'm 
I don't want to go too hard on the public health people, but prior to this, there were two. They were, their number one job was putting up signs that said "Wash your hands before you go back into the kitchen at a restaurant." Now they're in charge of global health policy, and you know, like that's a big transition, and that can go to your head a bit. And I think that we we allowed ourselves to not understand the broader aspects of culture and how those things worked. And we're very sympathetic to people who weren't as scared of us as, as us. And I, I was scared. I moved to a different province because I was scared. You know, like, I mean, literally, I went somewhere safer to live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm yeah, sympathetic lots of to people that. Died. Yeah, yeah, lots of people died. You know, people, people I know, you and I know. And, you know, it's it's scary. So I, I, I think that there was just a lack of empathy. And also, I think people, and I think, I hate to say this goes back to Trump, but it does in a way because I think people are going back and saying, see, we're in power now. We are right. We can do what we want. And we we kind of ignored the people who, who agreed with us 90% because they disagreed with us 10%. Let's move on. You're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here. We're talking to Q. Anthony O'Meny, uh, freelance uh, writer and host of the Unredacted podcast of David Slavic. A political analyst. I don't think he's so semi-retired and the host of the popular podcast. Uh, and uh, we're going to start with you, David, because Ukrainian, American, Canadian, uh, Russian troops are down the streets, by the way, in Kiev, uh, Kiev however the broadcasters are now pronouncing it. Uh, and uh, and it's, street, uh, it's street fighting going on now. Um, thoughts? So, so I, I, I'm just going to jump off and say, first off, I did not think that this would happen. I, I'm going to say that fully. I I had laughed. Uh, you know, I have a, a father-in-law who's reading Ann Applebaum in the, in the Atlantic all the time. And I said, you're hysterical. You're being crazy. This is not going to happen. That's not reasonable. It happened, you know, and I have friends and family in, in a lot of the effective regions. And, you know, like it's, it's scary to me. Um, now, whether that needs to be, um, you know, sort of an international interventionist issue, whether that obviates some of the issues with NATO, et cetera, et cetera. I think Q is going to talk a little bit more about that because he I, he had a great um, Twitter space and I, I had not really engaged in Twitter spaces that much, but today I, I peeked in and he had people from all over, you know, the global South, Eastern Europe, uh, Canada, United States talking about sort of their concerns about this. this I had people from El Salvador in it there. Was, and it, it wasn't me. It was, it was so me. good. It was, it was so good. No, it was my buddy Carl Zod that opened yeah. it. And then I got I got press ganged into co-host. But yeah, there was like there was over a thousand people in there. Yeah. And it was it was some of the smartest people from around the world that I'd ever heard talk about this issue. And it was interesting because they had I felt a lot of my concerns of what they were talking about. And and one of the things is like U.S. intervention is very scary to me. I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm 42 years old. A lot of my friends went to Iraq. A lot of them went to Afghanistan. I've seen the impact of what this global imperialist, you know, impact is. I started my career working in Serbia for USAID. Um, you know, I've worked on contracts that dealt with Ukraine on in civil society and things like that. So I, I'm familiar with the area. And I, I just, I felt uh, in the last week that, um, my sort of framing on this issue had been dramatically changed and I really didn't know how to deal with it. And also I think, um, I think it's good news in, in a very bleak way, because I think people in the West need to see white people kill white people before they understand that war is bad. Yeah. It's sort of interesting that at the same time, uh, you know, uh, the, the Sauds drop, I, I think there are 37 airstrikes in Yemen, um, there was an Israeli attack in Syria. There was a USA attack in Somalia at the same time. Uh, not to say that, you know, uh, 
you know, they shouldn't be paying attention to Ukraine, of course not. But, but uh, yeah, war has unfortunately always been with us. Um, Q, Anthony, weigh in here. Oops, maybe we've lost him a little bit there. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm oh, here. Okay, I'm here. okay. Just a pregnant pause. Go for it. No, no, sorry. I, but I, I did because uh, my phone went to low battery mode. I got kicked mm. out for a second. I, no. I, and I, I missed the last part of what David was saying. Would you mind catching me up? Uh, well, just uh, just uh, essentially the first part of what he was saying. But um, but I, I just made the point that there were, you know, 37 airstrikes in Yemen same time by the south oh my god there yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah there were was a u.s strike in somalia and there was an Israeli US strike, in, strike somalia. in syria yeah yep. um a, a, during the same russian invasion but i mean and, and not to detract from the horror of it all um but uh i that's how i was gonna like pitch to you so cute no i will yeah, i will detract from the no i will detract from the quote-unquote horror of it all right now you know how i'm gonna do that i'm gonna say nobody cared when Luhansk and Donetsk were shelled in violation of the Minsk agreements, not just one, but two Minsk agreements that included provisions for ceasefire, which were followed by the uh, breakaway regions, the, uh, the governing bodies of those breakaway regions, were not followed by the Ukrainian government. Eight years. I, 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 I have a relative that is not able to get out of Donetsk. Yeah. Uh, there was a low possibility she was going to be able to get out. And now there's almost no possibility unless one of us flies over there and is able to facilitate her leaving. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I don't speak Russian, but we're going to have to figure this one out. Yeah. Nobody cared when that was happening the entire time since 2014. Nobody cares why Russia felt the, the, uh, the need to annex the Crimean Peninsula. Nobody asked those questions because they just assume that evil Slavic people bent on world domination are doing what Slavic people always do. That Putin is crazy, the Russians are brainwashed, and they just follow his every command. Nobody cared about the fact that uh, there were neo-Nazi militias operating in that eastern region. And the only reason that they were there in the first place wasn't because you just happen to have a problem with neo-Nazis in Eastern Europe. I mean, you do. But they weren't part of the regular military. Why were they militia people and not the military? Well, because the members of the Ukrainian military that were stationed in the eastern portion just outside the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, outside of the Donbass territory, they did not want to roll tanks and fire mortars and shoot guns at their own countrymen. They didn't want to do that. And so they were moved elsewhere. They were, de they were either uh, decommissioned or moved elsewhere. And the Ukrainian government put guns in the hands of neo-Nazi soccer hooligans, not actual military recruits, soccer hooligans that were waving the swastika at soccer games and shouting anti-Semitic slurs and waving the flags of fascist uh, Ukrainian organizations that took part in the Galician genocide of Poles and Jews. Those were the people that the Ukrainian government recruited to go out and shell, use cluster bombs illegally against civilian targets, rape and murder people. Those are the ones that the Ukrainian government empowered to go in and try to pacify these regions. So, so and what that are you saying, are you saying years, they deserve it? Eight, what? No, no. What I'm saying is eight years of that happened and nobody said a damn thing. And I'm not saying that this excuses Putin and I'm not saying that this excuses Russia. But when you say things like Russia moved into the region unprovoked, that is absolute BS. 
Because if you are seeing people that share the same ethnicity as you, look how quickly Americans and Canadians felt a camaraderie and kinship with the Ukrainian people, and they're not even Ukrainian themselves. And they're cheering this on. So how the hell do you think Russians feel when they see Ukrainians bombing people that belong to their ethnicity for the course of eight years, and nobody's not, not only doing nothing, but sending hundreds of millions of dollars to arm these thugs to commit these war crimes against their own people. So do this is Putin justified in um, a military invasion of Ukraine and taking out their military targets and uh, and trying to move, uh, uh, trying to uh, wage a ground war into their major cities? I don't think so. But does he have a reason and does Russia have a reason to go into the Donetsk and Luhansk territories that were declared independent, that they recognized the states because for eight years their own people were getting slaughtered? Yes, I absolutely do believe that they were provoked into that. And everybody that's cheering this on and uh, valorizing you, like videos of Ukrainian people that are talking smack into cameras and saying that they're going to go out and slaughter some Russians you ought to feel sick because you are you have no stakes in this whatsoever. Yeah, you're not going to see people die in this outcome that you know. Like they, uh, they, they, they're just watching, they they're watching this on television. No, sorry, watching, sorry, I'm just gonna weigh in here. No, for I'm saying a they're bit. watching this. They're watching this on TV, and it's making me sick that they're cheering this on. Well, first of all, we have a lot of Ukrainians in Canada and the diaspora here. Of course, we do, and especially sure. where I live, right? Um, yeah, no, no, I, huge, I got that. No, I'm huge saying, but the number people, of Ukrainians are very worried about their the families. pundits. I see the yeah. pundits I see cheering this on don't have any stakes in the outcome. No, I, I hear, I hear you. There's yeah. much more to the background that that yeah. we should know to be able to be analysts of the situation undoubtedly. But I sure. also have a really hard time thinking uh, that Putin has the best interests of anybody other than Putin and a few of the oligarchs in in, in mind. No, but the, I mean, the reason you've got, that... You've got, you've got yeah. hundreds of thousands of Russians, for example, in the streets, uh, the left in Russia. You know, the Who Marxist are they, though? Who are they? The, the, oh, many of the well, people that are protesting, many of the people that are protesting are supporters of Alexei Navalny. I know they are. They say Hang on, hang on, hang on. So, okay, just a, just a quick note. Yes, many of them are members of their communist supporters and members of the Communist Party. As a matter of fact, the Communist Party uh, members within the Duma voted to recognize the Donbass territories as independent states. They supported that. And what are they saying right now? We voted to support them as independent states because they're fellow Russians, but we did not vote to support uh, Putin rolling tanks and bombing Kiev. We did not support that. At the same time, many of the people in St. Petersburg Square are comrades. They're communists and they're socialists. You know who else is there? Far right backers of Alexei Navalny, who the United States and Canada have also supported in his challenge to Vladimir Putin. And guess what? He's also a neo-Nazi. He believes that people who live in the Caucasus regions should have to have a passport to go to Moscow, even though they're also <laughs> Russians. So I'm saying okay, like a okay, lot of people, let's, let's a lot David of people have, yeah, okay, sorry, go David. ahead. David. No, no, I, I think he's right about the Baldy. I think that, the, you know, that the West often picks the, the worst, the best of the worst or the worst of the best. I'm not sure exactly who I, I, I remember uh, was in Serbia. Uh, uh, this is like almost 20 years now. And I remember the Western backed party got raided by the government with uh, SWAT teams. And I remember the, hearing the doors get kicked out as I was working the USAID above. 
and then going out and having a beer later. But, you know, it, you just get used to these type of situations. But I think now I think like the thing about this whole conflict is that it, it puts all this on end because when we could have been choosing people who have better represented the interests of the people in Russia or in Ukraine or whatever, you know, we had, um, you know, uh, Valerie Newland say F the EU when they overthrew somebody in 2014, you know, and that that's, that's out there. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's recorded. It's out there. You know, uh, we've had every situation where there was an opportunity to back someone who was popular and, and reasonable to the interests of the people in the Eastern Europe. We've always backed the biggest loser possible. And I just, it's, it's hard. And I think, and I think, you know, Kuwaiti has really gotten to this is that it's really hard to determine who's who when, you know, we have Western backed NGOs who have nothing but ill will towards the people of those places, uh, you know, backing some of these people. So it's, it's so complicated. And, and I, I, I find it a little gut wrenching, to be honest. <laughs> well, on that note, by the way, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show here, a really uh, spirited discussion on the Left, Left, or Leftist panel uh, with Q. Anthony Omeni, who's a freelance writer, host of the Unredacted podcast, David Slavic, uh, analyst and host of the popular podcast. Uh, and we just have a few minutes left here. And it, it is the tradition of this show to leave on some po on positive note. <laughs> so so um, what should uh, what should we be doing? Um, all socialists here, you know, concerned, uh, I think, about equality, uh, anti-racism, all these good things. Um, what is what should we be doing sitting where we're sitting in Canada uh, when we look at this world? Um, and uh, uh, and yeah, Hugh Anthony, let's have it. Two minutes. <laughs> um, you know, it's really tough to to uh, know where to begin with that, because I think all of us like want to be able to um help in some way shape or form and it's like where do you even start and and the really the the thing that i i um, um really want to impress on people is that if you are going to donate to a charity or some organization that claims to be um uh that claims to be helping out you really want to do your homework first um i i've uh i've actually um had to uh, tweet about this and I plan on writing about it, but you know, there's been fundraisers that are going around um, and uh, people are linking to organizations that are themselves funneling money to some of these far right neo-Nazi organizations. It's actually, it's kind of depressing that like, you know, uh, people are having their heartstrings tugged on and out of the natural human instinct to want to be able to do something. What's happening is that their money is being funneled away. I think from organizations that are, trying to do good and, and trying to uh, help average citizens of Ukraine that don't want any of this and never asked for any of it. And it's, it's being funneled towards organizations that are exacerbating the conflict. So one thing I will say is that you really want to do your homework first, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, your, if your gut instinct is to try to do something to help and what you can do to help is um, sending money to organizations that are simply trying to help those um, that are, at the effect of this conflict, then do that. And now may also be a really good time to donate to your, um, you know, your, your local food bank. Now be maybe a good time to check in on your friends and neighbors, uh, because frankly, like this is probably going to get worse before it gets better. And it's a bit of a wake up call that 
the best thing that we can do is support one another in times like these. Thank you. And David, uh, final words, couple of minutes. Yeah, I, I'm going to say, I'm going to just uh, piggyback on, on what Q Anthony had said. Uh, you know, as in Canada, uh, I'm on the edge of the sort of, uh, now there's there's edge and there's edge in Canada. So if you're getting up to none of it, you get your, like, what your vegetables look like up there are a little different than what we look like in Newfoundland. But we're on the edge of, I'd say, the, the center, so to speak, in Newfoundland. Um, I would get out there and if you have some land or you have some opportunity to get out and plant something this summer, I would get out and plant some vegetables. And uh, Q has been really big on this and I'm big on this as well, is that, you know, giving the opportunity to give your friends and family vegetables that you've grown, pickles that you've packed, even if you go to the farmer's market and get those vegetables, remember that local is always better. And as we go into a world of, of uncertainty abroad, we need to make sure that we make certainty locally. Say hi to your neighbor, be kind to them because you never know when they're going to matter. And this time it might matter more. All right. Yeah. Keep uh, that love out there. <laughs> certainly. I, and, and your answers are very local. I love that. Uh, and certainly we saw even during the G20 in the city, how kind of local kept people safe really, in our own uprising, our mini uprising here. Um, you've been listening to the Radical Reference Show. It's been a blast um, with Q. Anthony uh, O'Benny, already said, freelance writer, um, host of the Unredacted podcast, and David Slavic, uh, political analyst, host of the popular podcast. Uh, you know, tune in to all of us, please. We're all on podcast. And let us know what you're thinking, because you're the ones that matter. Until the next time on the Radical Reverend Show, take care.